0: Welcome to the Crime of the Century podcast, where we expose higher education as the scam that it is. I'm Kevin Prendiville, and I believe that because of what we're teaching our students, we're losing an entire generation. Today, as always, we'll be diving headfirst into controversial subjects, undaunted by political correctness. Now, in the past few uh, podcasts, we've been talking about, really since the end of the Napoleonic era, a, a time of peace in Europe that has led to great scientific discovery. And of course we mentioned the scientific revolution of the 1600s with Galileo and the emerging thoughts about the solar system and natural science in general. But now we've reached ahead where as we're in about 1912, 1913, political philosophies and a prolonged era of peace have really led to this kind of angst among the general populace. and we are right on the edge of World War One and a shift in academic philosophy, thought, and what the public thinks. And all of this is going to help us decipher the crime of the century because it will give us the background for how we got to where we are. And we can use, like a scientist, we can use history to analyze outcomes. And this all is part of the crime of the century. So there are a couple of, we're going to actually shorten the time period today. We're going to go only from about 1914 to just before the Great Depression, so about 1929, and that's a shorter time period. Usually we've been covering 50 to about 100 years, um, even once when we went from Reformation to uh, the 30 years war we did about 150 years but today it's the shortest time period because there was so much change in the war that changed the world and World War One is the bridge between old and new when it comes to academic philosophy aristocracy in general how nations are structured and what the public thinks when it comes to warfare. Now, war had always been rather glorious in the in terms of the public and, and, and there is some weird uh, uh, argument that it was all propaganda that made the public think this. That's not true. That's kind of pushed by uh, cultural, uh, cultural Marxism. That's not really accurate in the sense that warfare always was born out of a necessity to protect, really protect the women and the children and that's why the men went off to war and that was just something that happened. Sometimes obviously you know the country was the aggressor but in, in, in many cases war was seen as glorious because you were proving yourself, you were showing yourself to be a uh, worthy of Having your, having your land, you were worth your salt. And so that idea, and of course it helped that there were no photos of you know the unfortunate part of war which is all of the gore and the blood. But by the time that World War I comes about in 1914, not only is there photographs, pretty high quality for the time, it's, it's actually funny, and this is an aside here, the, once we've gone back and colorized everything, uh, the younger generations are going to be so confused because color photos from, you know, the sixties are going to be all grainy and kind of weird looking, but color photos from 1914 are going to be real high quality because it was high quality. It was just in black and white. And now that's going to be, you know, colorized it's going to really throw people off. But uh, the same thing with film, although uh, I don't think anyone will mistake the silent film era for high-quality film. I mean, that you know that stuff is a little uh, shaky. Regardless, warfare was still seen by the public in 1913 and leading into the war as something of old, that, that it was, again, that you're going to prove yourself, and, hey, there hadn't been a major war in Europe in, like, 60 years, and you know, war at this point, uh, uh, especially, you know, in a lot of the Balkan liberation movements that we had talked about, war had been short, you know, it it had been sort of uh, 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 bloody, as it was expected, but it wasn't, it wasn't any longer than a couple months, really, and, and casualties were not high for the war, you know, any casualty is unfortunate, but but you didn't have this 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 mass loss of life you didn't have that many families affected all when it's all said and done so the public really was for everyone involved in world war War one the public was behind it certainly in france the 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 french public they had been taught in their schools to hate the germans they hated the germans they figured that they they thought the germans were an illegitimate state that they were superior to the Germans, as they always had been. They had used a lot of imagery of Louis XIV, of the great Napoleon and the French victories, and that idea of being French, of, of French liberty, which, as we've explained, uh, is different than what we in the U.S. think of liberty. But all of these ideas, they were unfit for for, for Germans, according to the French, and that and the Germans had no right to rule the lands that they did. So the French public was very much behind the state when it came to fighting those Germans. And on the other hand, the German uh, young people, well, their fathers had secured the right to build the German state and to to, to live up to that, to, for themselves, create that greater Germany and establish themselves as... The dominant country in Europe, the young German men wanted to prove themselves that way and so they were more than happy when if their country should need them to sign up because they were going to go to war and they were going to show the French that they weren't all that great and that the German nation was superior and the fact that they it was their time now as Germans to rule Europe and the English well kind of different. In the English, it was about adventure. You know, they had always, given the fact that they were the largest empire the world has ever seen and probably will ever see, almost 40% of the earth's surface was under English rule. That cannot be understated. And so it was join the army and see the world, That that there was a good chance that if you join the army, you're going to Egypt or you're going to India or you're going to uh, heck, you could be going to Singapore or Hong Kong, or you could be going uh, eastward. You could be going and spending time uh, near America. You could be going to Canada. You could be going anywhere. So for the Englishmen, it was an adventure, you know, a call to, a call to seeing all the interesting natives and seeing all these different places of the world that, that, you know, you'd only read about in books. And, you know, you're going to get cholera in London. Might as well get cholera in Bangladesh instead. I mean, so for the for all parties involved, when the call was sounded to go to war in World War I, it was not anything but a grand old time. And many experts at the time thought that World War I would have lasted seven months at the most. Now, many people don't understand how World War I came about, and it really came down to a disagreement between Austria-Hungary and uh, Serbia. Now Austria-Hungary owned and had a province that was uh, is now the country of Bosnia. And at that time it had been its own country and then the Ottomans took it and then the Austrians took it from the Ottomans and the Serbians had for the longest time argued that uh, Bosnia was their rightful territory. And the what was known as the Black Hand Gang, which was kind of a radical group in Serbia, wanted independence for the region and wanted to return it to Serbian territory. So if they were to assassinate the heir apparent to the Austrian throne, then they would be able to make demands. They would able to be... They they assumed it would make them strong enough to the point where they could bring Austria to the negotiating table that that they would see Serbia as a legitimate threat as a legitimate nation and bow to them this is pretty much a pipe dream that that the Austrians as what was shown by what happened the Austrians just got mad they didn't suddenly think Serbia was actual threat they just they basically were they were enraged because you know they they it was essentially to the austrians it was like we let you live we let you hang out we protected you from the ottomans and then this is how you repay us so it didn't make the austrians afraid of the serbians it made the austrians mad at the serbians and so the austrians uh wanted to go right to war against serbia again their public was would be for it the public felt as though that uh, too, that Serbia had attacked them uh, without being provoked, that this was an affront to them, that the public was ready to, to rally around the Austrian flag. And the, a lot, a lot of in, the, uh, in the parliament, both the Austrian and Hungarian government, they, they too felt as though they had been directly assaulted. And they, the only fear, the only thing keeping them from going right ahead was that the fact that Russia had claimed that they were the Serbian protectors and so in order to protect themselves against possible possible russian backlash because austria was not as technologically advanced either or industrial or as industrialized as the german empire and they were a little bit nervous that the russians would be able to overpower them just in might and the fact that their technology was pretty even in terms of um you know there was both sides were a little bit behind the great powers and in order to what they would assume would be to to use as a justification for going against serbia the austrians uh felt that they needed german backing and wilhelm ii trying to poke at Russia, knowing that Russia was going to try to do something in Serbia, and to try to get the Russians to back off and help their ally. So it was, this was done in good faith. Wilhelm II said basically, anything that you do, Austria, if somebody declares on you, we will counter that and go to war with that country. So this gives Austria essentially a blank check to do what they want in the region. And so they drafted 10, essentially 10 uh, points that they wanted Serbia to bow to, which if Serbia accepted all 10, you know, the Austrians wouldn't go to war. But the point of this, they they made it so radical that on purpose the Austrians knew that the Serbs would say no, or that was their calculation, that the Serbs would, would reject it and this would give them a reason to the international community for going to war. Well, the Serbians actually turned around and accepted all, except it's called the nine and a half point treaty where there was just one half, which essentially would would have made Serbia a a puppet of the Austrian empire, would have expanded Austrian influence. That was the only thing, the Serbians really wanted their independence, understandably. They'd been under Ottoman rule for 800 years, so, their are newfound independence. They weren't ready to give up. Hence, Austria put that in the, um, in the treaty, knowing that the Serbians probably wouldn't accept that. And this meant that it gave Austria free reign to declare on Serbia. So Austria-Hungary declares war on Serbia. This means Russia, who has said that they would protect the Serbians, Russia starts to mobilize, and Germany warns them, again, and says that If you go to war against Austria, you know, we'll go to war against you. Well, this triggers, because it would have been technically a defensive war, that Germany would have been the aggressor. The French, now, who has a defensive treaty with Russia, which basically means whoever gets attacked, the other one joins in. Well, now France starts to mobilize. And Germany and the German high command, uh, Hindenburg, knows that he—and and Wilhelm, um, Wilhelm II, the head of state and the head of high command, which was uh, Hindenburg, he did not want to fight a two-front war, not against France and not against Russia at the same time. And in order to get France to back down, the Germans basically said, well, if you— go to war if we if you don't start mob- stop mobilizing we're going to declare war on you and the french don't care the french wanted to fight the germans as we had as we've gone over the, the the french people and the french nation they wanted their what they felt was their rightful territory back they wanted to regain control uh, of europe they wanted to limit german influence and and so the, that wasn't a threat to the french that was an enticement so The French keep mobilizing, and the Germans, not wanting to renege on that, not wanting to look weak on the international stage, went ahead and declared war on France. And this was all happening around July 27th of 1914, and the days leading up to that. And by the time that Austria had moved into Serbia, they were already fighting a border war against the Russians, and the opening moves on the Eastern Front between the Germans and the Russians had begun. Now Germany was not going to outright run through the middle of France. That would be rather stupid. And there were two plans essentially that German Germany decided, the German high command decided between. There was Operation Tannenbaum, which would have meant that they would have declared on Switzerland and attempted to go through the Alps, which since Rome, that's been known as not a very good idea, that they would have tried to go through the Alps and kind of swing around into the south of France and then come up to the north. Or they could go north first and move through Belgium and from Belgium go through uh, into France, uh, which would get them much closer to Paris much sooner. Only one problem, that the English Empire, which has stayed out of this, is has protected Belgium for for a number of years ever since they declared independence from the Dutch, from the Netherlands. So they uh, issue what is a guarantee of independence to uh, the Belgians, which essentially means that the Germans, if if, if the Germans attempt to declare war on the Belgians and move through Belgium into France, that then England would jump in. Well, the Germans aren't going to sacrifice trying to just bang their heads against the wall against France and they're not going to go south through Switzerland. I mean they could but they spend more manpower trying to do that. Um, It would be unpopular in the sense that Switzerland has been completely neutral for a number of years. They're seen as Germanic. It was not a tenable situation. So instead Germany says well if we throw most of our weight behind Belgium. We can overpower them before the English can show up and break into France that way. And so it was decided that they would declare on Belgium. And this brought the English into the conflict and sets up our major players for the First World War. We have the Triple Entente, which is France, the United Kingdom, and Russia, which would later be expanded to include the United Kingdom, France, Italy, the United States, Japan, and Russia. The Central Powers, which included at this point the German Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but which would later be expanded to include Bulgaria and the Ottoman Empire for the end of its existence. This really set up kind of, it, it, was, a, it was an odd combination of, of old alliances and defensive treaties and things that harken back to a time when when Europe was dominated by kings. But for our conversation, we're going to leave this conflict and we're going to go over to the United States because this is where the fruits of the doctrinal understanding that we talked about last podcast where the academics in the United States could not get a doctorate from our institutions. Instead, they had to go overseas, and they had to go to uh, Germany, most notably, and France, and they learned kind of a a different political background than most of the American public had that we believed in individual liberty, we stressed individual freedom, whereas Europe, and what became kind of the academic ethos here, really stressed the will of the people, whatever that may be, when it came to declaring laws. Now, the US, this is the other thing about the United States, is that we've pretty much always been isolationist, and when it came to this conflict with uh, Europe um, the US it was like okay we're not getting involved in this <laughs> that that yes we were helpful the, the French were trying to get us on board the, the French had gone back to our independence days and it was essentially the French were saying okay we helped you fight off the British now we need your help and the English were trying to really uh, we're trying to kind of get us on board although we had this. Uh, there's a time period called the Great Reconciliation. That was the early nineteen hundreds, where we started to kind of warm back up to each other. Though it wasn't, um, it wasn't. It wasn't like it is now. As in, we 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 almost now, uh, especially our nation leaders. Or when you see uh, Nigel Farage was on a podcast recently, and he's kind of joking with the with the American House, because obviously the. Uh, independence Day is coming up, so we almost joke about, you know, our independence from England now. When when, when we talk, um, when we talk about it, but still at this time period that there the relations weren't icy, but they weren't great. There was still a little bit of resentment between the two. But the Englishmen uh, uh, were trying to, at least. Uh, because w- we were willing to trade with them as sort of a favor to France, but also uh, acknowledging that England was at least a free country and that we were willing to supply them, so it was kind of it was really the first time militarily that, that there was some cooperation that the United States and uh, her convoys were protected by the uh, English, the uh, part of the English uh, Royal Navy, and. The the general public in the United States was, the, uh, as we've explained, pretty isolationist. that This was Europe's problem. And can you blame them? You know, when when this comes back up in World War II, that we say this is Europe's problem, you can kind of say that it is, but at the same time, you know, Germany owned pretty much all of Europe, by, you know, by 1940. So it was much more difficult to say that this wouldn't reach our shores, and Hitler's a much different politician than Wilhelm II. This, this war, this was, World War I pretty much happened by accident. This was not supposed to happen this way, that, that it was supposed to be really a conflict between Austria and, and, and Serbia, and that turned into something that changed the entire direction of the world, and so World War II when there's less of an argument for isolationism in World War II but you can you can understand it in World War I. But the academics in in our country were much more concerned with progressive politics and this is where you have to analyze because the word progressive progress invokes potential. We've talked about this before, that when we've talked about modern-day Antifa, and obviously you've heard about, um, you know, they've recently beaten a gay man, which seems like a hate crime to me, but I guess it's okay because they're on the left. Someone can explain that to me later. And regardless, we've talked about how they envision a U.S. that is communist, that is communistic. And that's where the U.S. is now and where they want it to get to. The difference between those two goals, what is and what could be, is known as potential. And that they beat, the reason they hit and the reason they use physical force is because anyone who stands in the way of that potential, anyone who is moving at the other direction, is a threat to the potential that they want to act on. And the reason that the progressives identify themselves with that word is because that word involves much like what is and what could be progression and being progressive is that what we would describe as potential. That, especially in the upper to upper middle class in the United States at this time in 1915, they believed in, at the very least, a mixed economy, if not because of the way they were taught in schools, what we can deduce that. They believed certainly in some sort of socialist utopia. I'm not gonna go out and say that they were communists, but definitely something that that did not resemble what had made America America. That they had abandoned the ideals of Rousseau and replaced it with Marx. And this was new, but not that that you can't blame them this way you can blame them now because Well, communism had really never been tried at this point. In 1915, there was no communist nation. It was an idea. It was in academic circles. It was seen as radical, because it is. But it was not... There's nothing you could point to to say, it doesn't work like you can nowadays. But the upper crust of American society was oriented in this way it's why many of our artists even today are oriented to the left that it has created this, this this bubble that has almost always existed that this disconnect that we can see between the academics and the common man is growing wider and wider that the idea of being a progressive is to progress to socialism And it was not couched this way. It was seen as progressing into a a more dignified state. It was seen as progressing out of the ills of of free market capitalism as it it was described in its day. Um, And you could see some of the the ills of early factories that, that, that smog and the dirt and the soot, most famously in London, that kind of settled on the city streets you could you could argue and you could make an argument that that you know there's a better a cleaner way to do this there's a better way to do this but the american people in general didn't want a shift in their government the, the american people were not discontented with their government in the same way that the progressives were. And this was seen in the election of Woodrow Wilson as a reaction to the election of Taft, but then the prompt um, firing of Woodrow Wilson. That's what we do. We fire American presidents that aren't elected to a second term. And Warren G. Harding was in there. We didn't have another Democrat until FDR. So very clearly, the American people did not accept Woodrow Wilson the same way that the academics did. But he is the president who led us through World War I. That Wilson believed in, aside from being a horrible racist, he believed in changing the nature of the American government to more aptly respond to social ills, which is different than the Founding Fathers. The Founding Fathers basically said that social issues were on the public to fix. The government existed in their minds to provide the most amount of individual freedom, which meant that some people were going to get left behind. Not wanting to accept this now, the progressive idea is, if we add more bureaucracy, if we add more ways for people to to side with the government against the evil corporations, then we'll have a society that, that can adapt to social change. But, And this is where, actually, in the... Um, Starting with Teddy Roosevelt, but Wilson as well, you get um, you know, you get the FDA and you get many of the government agencies that we have today um, in terms of uh, social agencies that have really done their best to, or to appear that they're doing their best to, to support the American public where they really can overreach, where in the Constitution if the government did that it, w- it would be unconstitutional, but, but these larger bureaucracies will be able to move in ways the government, could act on the behalf of the government without being the government, if that makes sense. So Woodrow Wilson has changed the nature of the American government. He is, I believe Princeton ed- educated. He is upper class society. He is a president that is considered one of the worst that never gets his due, that he's protected in academic circles. He's somebody that had FDR not come along. I think a lot of people on the academic left would look up to. But interestingly enough, I don't think the public, the left-leaning public, would look up to him. Not that he would be seen as a tyrant like FDR, but that he would be flimsy, almost weak, that he wasn't a very good leader in general. For instance, as we fast forward, we're gonna fast forward all the way to US intervention in World War I, which was caused because well, frankly, the, the Germans underestimated us twice. And uh, the, this first time, it's understandable that the U.S. on the world stage was seen as, like, backwards hillbillies that had guns, but we weren't the, we weren't the European great powers. We weren't... Europe's always been arrogant, and, and especially every nation in Europe has been arrogant, more notably the French and the, and the Germans, but, but Europe has never until, you know, the 50s and 60s where we were the only thing standing between them and the, and the communists. Um, you know, the U.S., we, we were just a bunch of backwoods hillbillies. You know, we live across a whole ocean and, 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 you know, we don't know what we're doing and, you know, how dare we break away from the English. So in World War I, you can almost understand the Germans underestimating the United States and our ability to wage war anywhere in the world, but but twice, guys, really? <laughs> they did it again in, in 41, but that's that'll be a, a podcast or two down the road. Regardless, the Germans sunk the Lusitania, and if you're not Howard Zinn, you understand that this was an unprovoked attack on 200 American civilians who all drowned to death. Understandably, this made the American public a little bit angry. We have done We've supplied the English. I'll understand I'll, I'll give us uh, I'll give the Germans that. so they weren't just out there to just blow up Americans. We were supplying the English, but the we weren't in direct conflict with Germany. We had not embargoed Germany. that there was no it, w- it was seen as an unprovoked attack, which it was. And in 1917, there was the uh, Zimmerman note. I'm sorry, in like 16, there was a Zimmerman note, which was essentially the Germans writing a note to Mexico that says that if they declared on the U.S. and were able to defeat us, that Germany, when the Germans won, because they assumed they were going to win, uh, they would give Mexico their land back. That would be Cal- uh, California, Nevada, Utah, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, most likely Texas, maybe even Oklahoma, that's a lot of land they were going to give back to Mexico. But Mexicans had just been through a revolution, a civil war and a revolution, essentially. They were in no condition to, to, to fight, and not that they saw the U.S. as... They saw the U.S. as more powerful than them, but not indomitable. Regardless, rather than, uh, you know, take the Germans seriously, because there was the Germans had promised help, but, you know half of their armies in Russia and the other half is stuck in France. There's not much the Germans could have done to help the uh, Mexicans against us. And so the Mexican government uh, just kind of relayed the message back to us that the Germans were attempting to persuade them. And this, again, when it reached the American public, it was like, well, wait a minute, we're not, not, we haven't provoked you, and yet it seems like the war is creeping cl- closer and closer. And so by 1917, it had reached a point uh, where the American public was wanting. Uh, this was also pushed by uh, immigrants, war refugees that had uh, come in through Ellis Island from uh, different affected areas uh, Italian immigrants, uh, French immigrants, a lot of Balkan immigrants. That not only was Germany belligerent, but this war needed to end, that the U.S. needs to go in there and essentially needs to liberate Europe. Now, it's not like World War II in the sense that France was still standing on its own. They'd been horribly beaten, though, uh, in the sense that a fifth of World War One casualties were Frenchmen, that the, the French suffered mightily in World War One. that most of the, you know, 20% of those who died were French, that the losses and what we're going to lead into here uh, at the end of World War I for the French were unfortunately massive. And it's most, uh, mostly the reason why they folded so quickly in World War II. But the political fallout and the ability for the U.S. to... Join the Allies, and I mean, it's no consequence that you know, a year and a half later, 18 months later, uh, the Germans had been defeated. But the unfortunate reality of World War One is that the way it changed the world was, was through bloodshed, that the Russian Empire went through a civil war became the first communist nation known as the um, Soviet Socialist Republics um, or USSR. The, The French were pretty much ousted from being one of the great powers in the sense that they were militarily the, their losses was were so great that the French morale, the willingness to go to war again for the French was if it could go negative it was. that that the the French French nationalism was at an all-time low after the war, that even though they had secured victory against the Germans, it was like what, what was that all about that it was seen as this, because of the origins of the conflict, that it wasn't seen by the the French people as a necessary conflict, and yet everybody around them was dead. For the English, it expanded their empire, but pretty much destroyed it in the sense that their manpower losses, and again, the the, the general public had turned from ready for war to to you know peace at any cost. That so much, so many people had died, they didn't want to go through with it again. That the English empire was larger than it had ever been while at the same time being weaker than it had ever been. And for the U.S., even though we achieved victory, we really kind of shrunk back into isolationism and and just kind of wanted to be left alone. That, That the war was not grand in terms of our manpower losses, that we didn't suffer the way the French suffered, we didn't suffer the way the English suffered or any of the Germanic powers, certainly not Russia, but that that conf- that was a once-in-a-lifetime thing that we're not going to affect Europe again. So for the next podcast, we're going to look at the social fallout from World War One. We're actually going to go into the Great Depression and how academic pol- uh, policies actually played out, how they affected our government. Now we'll be seeing the fruits of Woodrow Wilson's labor, and from this, we'll be able to better understand how the crime of the century relates to our everyday lives as we go through the remainder of the 20th century. And because of that, it will give us a clear picture as to what is exactly the crime of the century.